I'm Brooke Lamb. And I'm Lindsay Sampson. And this is Kismet, a podcast exploring the big and small moments in life that change us. We hope you find here an invitation to notice more fully the presence of love in your own life and receive the gifts of the stories of others. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to Kismet. We're so excited that you all are here. Yes, and we have our first man guest. <laughs> man guest. Yeah, that's what, it's a that's particular what you are. Right. <laughs> His name is Tyler Pate, and we are super excited that he was willing to come on today and talk with us. My name is Tyler Pate. Uh, I'm married to Katie Pate. Uh, we just celebrated six years, so that's Yay! really exciting. Yeah, so I work in capital markets at Nissan. So I've been a finance guy most of my career. I own a brewery, entrepreneur on the side, business owner. So my life is uh, pretty busy. Originally grew up in Atlanta through high school, and then I went to school for college in West Tennessee and then kind of stuck around since, eventually coming to Nashville to work. And I've been here almost 10 years. Is that so what brought you here was work originally? Yeah, so I graduated college, kind of floated around for a couple of years trying to figure out what to do, and then found a job with a bank here that's based in Nashville, and that brought me to Nashville. And I was there for a long time and moved to Nissan and just have stuck around. I'm curious, I feel like this is good for people to know before we hear your story, kind of like what your religious or spiritual background is, like the context... So I grew up Church of Christ, and I would still consider myself of that branch of Christianity. So very conservative, COC, went to a conservative Church of Christ university, uh, graduated from there, and like I said, stuck around Nashville, and I've always kind of stayed in the realm of Church of Christ, um, and still kind of in that realm today. Basically, I think that the gist of uh, the Church of Christ is very focused on a literal reading of Scripture and how it applies to our lives today. So that means, you know, our church worship setting is very simple compared to maybe what you see in modern churches. It's very boiled down to its most essential characteristics. So worship looks like singing without instruments, so a cappella music in most cases, you know, a sermon, uh, communion every Sunday, prayer, that kind of thing, giving every Sunday as well. Um, very focused on keeping it true as close as they can to what they see in, in Scripture. So there's not been a lot added or changed over the years. And then you kind of extrapolate from there, and everything is kind of with that lens of very elemental in how they practice uh, what they read in Scripture. Uh, isn't it the, what's it called, the... Ref, the Restoration. Restoration, yes, not Reformation. Yeah. Restoration. So, yeah, so, the, yeah, so 1800s, you know, a lot of, I guess, religious leaders, uh, that had come over to the States from Europe where, you know, a lot of people came to America for uh, religious freedoms to practice. So having that as their background, as they saw things that they didn't 
agree with and script you know, how things were being carried out and specifically for the restoration movement I think some of it started around communion and who was allowed to take communion and who was allowed to give communion mm-hmm. and the idea was very I think an idea that I would uphold that communion is for for everyone there shouldn't be restrictions now it's maybe different for somebody who uh, is a, a believer and accepts Christ and has you know taken on that as their religion and their belief system, uh, but to have some someone else tell you you can or can't take communion was a very instrumental thing in the restoration movement. And then it kind of took from there as they broke off, and the leaders of that movement, you know, continued to find other things that they thought should be done differently. And you know, it's kind of like we see today, people going against conventional wisdom in medicine and science and things like that where, you know, they have good reason to, I wouldn't say doubt, but challenge the the status quo. I think that was going on a lot, and that's kind of what fueled the restoration movement. And then from there it continued to branch out in different pockets and different sects around the, the country. Yeah. And a lot of it socioeconomic and, you know, politics and, economics played into it um, how these different groups that continued to kind of segment but I think for the Church of Christ it really kind of solidified in the south that's where it's been the most prominent I think Tennessee Alabama Georgia that region Kentucky is kind of where a lot of what I'm familiar with the Church of Christ being is most prevalent in this part of the country because the Church of Christ in the northeast or out west looks very different. And correct me if I'm wrong, the Church of Christ is pretty decentralized. So there's not like a right. sort of hierarchy. There's no yeah, and that's, that, that comes from the Restoration Movement. And also how they were interpreting and understanding Scripture was, you know, each regional or community body that's practicing as a church uh, should be autonomous from each other. And while they may interact but there's really no governing body that oversees all of them each one is kind of led by their own leadership elders deacons members of the the church and what they do is you know completely different than what the church down the street would be doing how do you feel like that's affected your spirituality your conception of god it's hard to say because i've not really known much differently but I do I think I think it does instill that sense of um you know your faith is is your own you know in a lot of ways it's your own journey and decision and that you have to take ownership of it you can't allow or expect other people to live out your faith for you it's a very personal thing that's a very American idea too individualism so I think those two things kind of mesh well because I think when you look at other denominations or groups that practice Christianity, there is more of a community idea in that the collective decision of the group or whatever impacts at the individual level. And so maybe there's more of a, you know, we're all in this together mindset. But I think the Church of Christ is very independent, uh, individualistic. Everything you do as a person is, you know, important and determines whether you're faithful or not faithful 
and I think there's a lot of things that probably just stem into the rest of my life because I, I I struggle with just oh I can figure it out on my own or I can deal with this on my own or I have to deal with this on my own. this is something I have to figure out for myself and while in certain ways that's true there are a lot of times where it's not and it's not helpful to think that way or to live that way because I think we have each other for a reason and uh, and I think that's Church of Christ still sees that, but I definitely think the underlying tone is the individual. You know, that that's true. I think in a lot of the evangelical modern movements of Christianity is like the, the, the primary emphasis sort of being on individual salvation. Mm-hmm. I think there's really good things and there's things that we lose sight of there too. You know, it's always, we can go too heavy on either side of that spectrum of, oh, I'm just... I go to church and I'm Catholic, so I'm a Christian and I'm part of the community. Or this is all about I have to do this myself and I have to earn it and I have to prove something. Yeah, I think that's kind of been my experience. Even though it was taught and, you know, spoken from the the pulpit of you can't earn it or you can't, you know, it definitely in action was the, the examples we had where people... Trying, We're trying really trying hard to real earn hard. it. You can't and, earn it, but you can try. Yeah, yeah. It's very complicated. I think any, whenever you're trying to unpack your your upbringing, your beliefs, it just you realize yeah. how complicated and oh, yeah. interwoven everything is, and it's humbling because when you're a kid, you think, oh, these people have it figured out, and you try to start emulating, them, and you're like, this is, <laughs> I don't want to be like them. <laughs> Uh, I think that's kind of what I took away from it was there's a lot of people that I look back on. And when I was a kid, I upheld them and looked up to them. But then becoming an adult and kind of seeing where their lives continue to take them, I realized like a lot of bitterness and brokenness that never was dealt with. And I think I've determined I just don't want to be like that. Which leads into Mm -hmm. very well, I think, um, your story. If you're like me as a busy mom with little kids or just a busy human living in this world that we live in, sometimes it's hard to find time to sit down and read. So a lot of the books that you're hearing us reference or authors that we discuss in the podcast, recommendations from our guests, you might be curious about reading one of those books. So I highly recommend Audible. I have had an Audible membership for years. I love it. It's totally worth it to me. Listening to books, it's so accessible in the car, throughout your day, while you're working out, whatever it is. And if you're interested in trying Audible out, we can get you a 30-day free trial with their Plus membership, which is only $7.95 a month after that trial. Um, And that one, you have access to their full Audible library. If you want the Premium Plus, which is one where you can actually also get a book that's outside of their library each month you get a download Uh, that's only $14.95 a month that's the one that I have either one you can try for free 30 days if you go to our website kismet-podcast.com slash audible and continue um, growing within yourself and with others through books why don't we just go ahead and okay yeah so April of 2021 uh, I was diagnosed with appendiceal cancer, uh, which is a very rare form of cancer. Not a lot is known about it and how it starts or why or what. When they 
look at it statistically, about 3,000 people in the United States will get it out of the 300-plus million people. So it's very uncommon. My story started like a lot of people that have this cancer starts is they uh, were feeling pain in their abdomen. They go to look, uh, get a scan or something to see if you have appendicitis, which is what I did. My doctor said, hey, you're, you need to go in and have this uh, looked at after doing a scan. So I went to the ER one early morning uh, in April, I think it was April 20th, which is significant to the story as well. Shortly after COVID, uh, everybody you know, had to wear masks. My wife couldn't come in with me to the ER. She had to wait outside. So I, I get checked in. I'm put on a bed. I'm rolled into the middle of a hallway to wait, hooked up to an IV, and just I sit there for about 12 to 14 hours waiting to to find out if they're going to take me back to surgery to remove my appendix or send me home with antibiotics. That was the discussion they were having. They were slammed all day with uh, ER patients. It was, it was 420, so they were getting people that had been using recreational drugs uh, and having a lot of it was um, uh, breathing issues or lung issues, and so they were coming in getting treated for that. So they were overwhelmed with people um, on that day. So I'm just sitting in the hallway of the ER on a bed for most of the day. And were you in pain that whole time? Uh, no. So because I ended up having cancer, I had a tumor, so I didn't have traditional appendicitis. It was kind of like it would flare up and then kind of subside. And that day it wasn't bothering me. So I wasn't in pain. I was just kind of hanging out. 14 hours? Yeah, for for a very long time. So they finally make the decision to to operate. So late that night, I think I went into surgery eight, nine o'clock at night, something like that. I don't remember exactly. You know, they prep me, they take me back, go to do surgery. And then the next thing I remember is waking up the next morning. The surgery went well. They got my appendix out. Operating doctor spoke with my wife, Katie. He told her, hey, surgery went really well, got the appendix out. Um, You know, standard practice is to send it off to pathology to just make sure everything's clear. He's like, told her, you have nothing to worry about. It's less than 1% chance anything comes back. So we we're all good. Go home, spend a week at home recovering. Um, and then I uh, originally had a follow-up appointment that was supposed to be telehealth. Just call and talk through and tell them I'm doing good. They called me and they asked me to come in. So it was April 29th. So he calls us back and he just starts, he just kind of goes into it. And he's like, hey, you know, we did pathology uh, and you have a, you had a tumor and it's carcinomic. Basically, you know, like at, at this time, it's not sinking in that he's saying, hey, you have cancer. Katie, that's immediately what she picks up. Uh, and she's just, she understands she's following a lot better than I am. I'm just kind of like, what are we talking about? Like, You're in shock. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of in shock, just in disbelief and not understanding. And he starts going through like, hey, you're going to be fine. You're young. You're healthy. Uh, we've taken the tumor out, so most of the risk is gone. You're probably going to have part of your colon removed, a right hemocolectomy. You know, the base of your appendix is connected to your colon. So he showed me on a – he drew out on a piece of paper. It's like, here's what your colon looks like. Here's where your appendix is. This is what we took out. This is what they're going to remove. 
He's like, it'll take a few months of recovery, then you'll probably do a little bit of chemo, and then in six months you'll be a success story. And he just laid it all out. And he looked at Katie and he's like, I've got to apologize to you. I told you that you had nothing to worry about, and I told you that there was less than a 1% chance that it would come back with anything serious. And he's like, I, I know better than that. Like, I should not have done that. And he's like, I just want to apologize for saying that. He's like, I've been writing this commentary on a, a, a research or some research has been done about appendicitis and whether or not uh, standard of care should be to operate or to send patients home with antibiotics. And it was, a, you know, I think it was a six-year study, and they had a 8,000 cases of appendicitis where they come into the hospital to be treated, and they give some antibiotics, send them home, and then they track them, and then they take patients where they operate right away, take their appendix out, and then they do pathology to see, you know, kind of what the results are from that. So he's telling us about the study, and he's like, he's about 30% of the people that go home with the antibiotic come back to have their appendix removed within 90 days. He's like, because the antibiotics don't work. And he's like, and beyond that, the study didn't track much more than 90 days, but when you do the math, is you know, a majority of people end up coming back to have their appendix removed. It's like, but some don't. Some continue to live on. And he's like, I was telling my daughter about this, and she's in high school, and she's really bright kid. She's really good at math. And she's listening to me say, spit out all these numbers. And she says, dad, do you realize that there are five people that are out there that have a tumor and don't know it in their appendix? And they're not going to know about it until it's too late. And he said, when she said that, it convinced them that he's always going to operate on anybody that comes into his surgery with appendicitis. My daughter saved your life. He's like, before that, I was, you know, 50-50. And on a day like the day that you came in, it probably made sense to send you home with antibiotics because your appendix had not burst yet from the size of how much it inflamed. It probably still could have been managed, or we would have thought it could have been managed with antibiotics. So we probably would have sent you home. He's like, now knowing what I know, you probably would have come back and it would have burst and it would have been very serious. And not only just from treating you from a burst appendix, but... Now you have cancer all in your gut, and the way that we would treat that is much more intense. He's like, my daughter, you can thank her. And he's like, because I wouldn't have known to do that. And he had been working on this, so April 20th was the day that I went into surgery. He published his commentary on this study on May 21st of that year. So he was actively studying this and reading this research and talking about this with his daughter, probably days within when I went in for surgery. When that happened, the conversation with his daughter, he it's just numbers at that point. There was nothing real about it. They, the numbers didn't mean anything. He didn't have anything concrete. And then he operates on me, and he has a, a, a real person that this research and his study of this research impacted immediately. And so... His daughter really did. She she probably saved my life or at least made it easier. And now there's probably going to be many more people after me that go into his operating room that are going to be saved because of, of that. I went in, met with an oncologist, met with a surgeon, cancer surgeon at Vanderbilt. They determined that I had stage 2 adenocarcinoma of the appendix, 
they were going to remove part of my colon. So I had that surgery. After I recovered, six, eight weeks later, I started chemo. I did three months of chemo on October 20th, exactly six months from when I had my appendix removed. I was done with all my treatment. And so far, I'm a success story. So like to the day, he said, in six months, you will be a success story. And and he's been right. It's still surreal. It's hard to believe it happened. But when I think back on it, I'm so grateful. It's one of those things I wish it never, I never had to experience it. But having experienced it, I can't imagine. It's hard to even think about how different it could be. How did you feel in the conversation when the doctor was telling you the that you had cancer? Really just shock and disbelief. I don't really think I had many feelings. I was processing it. I was trying to think of questions to ask. I'm kind of on the spectrum of agreeability. I'm a pretty agreeable person, so I kind of take on the, the attitude of the person I'm with. And he was very confident. We're going to take care of this. You're going to be fine. You're going to be good. You're going to be a success story. Like, So in the moment, I felt like, we got this. Like, okay, yeah. This is okay. Yeah, he's like, okay, is. okay, this is, you know, not great. Obviously, it's yeah. cancer, but, yeah. you know, it sounds like we've got a plan and we're gonna, I'm going to be fine. Mm. It wasn't until, like, telling my parents, telling my in-laws, starting to tell people where it was really starting to set in, like, this is going to be your reality for the next few months. Like, you, you have a hard road ahead of you and there's no certainty your mind goes to a lot of different places very quickly and starts to, you know, worst case scenarios really fast. And you have a question pop up in your head and you Google it and then you realize like that was a bet. That was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) I should have just been ignorant because now I'm reading things that, yeah, it says appendix or appendiceal cancer. But when you're looking at numbers and you don't know how to read them and you haven't, had that experience as a as a doctor to learn what they mean like you can go to some really scary places really quick because you just don't know what you're reading and if it even applies to you you learn like I'm only going to take information from my doctor and discuss this with them because at least they can tell me what to worry about it doesn't mean I don't challenge what they think doesn't mean I don't go get a second opinion or or test what they're saying but also understand like I'm a I'm a novice like I know nothing about this and they've spent a majority of their life in some cases on this specific thing but yeah the the days after were really tough the the few weeks after there were so many small moments that didn't necessarily individually have huge significance but just mm-hmm. like this person doing this particular kind of research. Okay. You happen to live here. You happen to go to this medical facility for this particular trip. This doctor bringing something up with his daughter. That didn't have to happen. Mm -hmm. The daughter being in a place where she's able to like process what her dad is saying and sort of muse back and respond and sort of just like bump ideas around like that didn't have to happen and like none of those individually are significant but there's this like mesh of care of like all of these things happened and the effect was that you are here yeah I can't wrap my head around it I think I look to it as being 
providential, divine in some ways. There's things that I'm doing today or you're doing or whatever that you don't understand how they ripple out and affect people. It's comforting in some ways to know that there are other people out there doing good things that they're doing them because they know they're good and they have no idea how it's going to impact somebody, but they know that it needs to be done. And it makes me very, I guess, aware of like, you know, my interactions with people, they, they matter if I can do something good, not because I want to see recognition for it, but just that hopefully it ripples out like the good work that other people have done and that's affected me. If you're enjoying the content that you're hearing here today, we would absolutely love the privilege to be able to make more podcasts for you and create more content that draws you deeper into relationship with yourself and more awareness of love in your life. Um, And if these stories and these conversations are doing that for you, please go to our our website, kismet-podcast.com slash support. It would mean the world to us for you to rate and review us. There also is a place you can donate to a fund that we have purely so that we can cover our operating costs. Also just want to um, acknowledge the people who you don't see or hear rather who helped create these podcasts. Ben Oksher is um, our editor. He's done just a fantastic job of um, helping everything flow together and sound a lot more seamless to you all than it did to us when we originally recorded it. Ariana Evans, who lent me all of her (laughs) equipment as I was beginning to figure out how to even do this podcasting thing. It's been such a learning adventure. My husband, Jake, who has supported us in allowing us to use this closet... (laughs) Literally, we record in our closet in our bedroom at our house, so... <laughs> and just his support and all of our friends and family who have been excited for us as we've done this fun, creative thing. So if you feel so led, if you feel inclined, if this has been a positive place for you and you want to contribute to creating more, uh, you can do that on our website and the Support Kismet link. Thank you so much for listening. There was a tiny moment of this doctor's daughter being like, hmm, I wonder. Yeah. Hey, people matter. Yeah. And it just came from her, like, just the fact that there was a moment where she decided to sort of, like, push back in a way that aligned with her belief that people matter. Right. I mean, like, in the Christian tradition, there's that language about the mustard seed. That's like, it's a tiny, tiny, yeah. tiny seed. Yeah. And it looks like nothing. And it doesn't, like, you don't plant this expecting that it's going to grow into, like, a massive oak. And you're, like, within your lifetime, you're right. going to see this thing flourish. And it's going to feed your whole family for all its fruit. It's like, it's this tiny moment of faithfulness and goodness and alignment with your belief in how the world works and, and how the lives of people matter. And... That feels so like mustard seedy. Yeah, definitely. I'm thankful for the people that think that way. Like I said, I have a, a finance background. Uh, I like economics and things like that. And something that I, you know, think back a lot is like five out of however many thousands of people that were in the study. It's like pretty good odds. Yeah, like that's a very small percentage. That's like less than one percent. That's less than half a percent, whatever. It's easy to 
just focus on the numbers and be like, oh, they're doing pretty good. But then you put yourself as one of the five and you're like, no, that's terrible. (laughs) Like, you're like, uh, and that's how I, you know, we still think about that today. It's like when somebody says, oh, you have a 97% chance of success. And you're like, but there's 3%. That's a big number. We've fallen into that. Yeah. I was like, I've been in the 1% before. And it's like, what's going to make it a hundred? Like, (laughs) and I think that's where like the power of real human empathy Mm. comes in here the truth is that like things get so much more real when it's personal Mm -hmm. you know statistics are great and I think we can use them to comfort ourselves sometimes or we can use them to help ourselves not worry about things and that you know that's fine I think that can be a helpful tool but at the end of the day like those three percent are real people yeah statistics don't matter when you're in the three percent mm-hmm I think back on, like I said, the economic side of it, like this sounds really morbid, but they put a value on human life. They say if the economic impact is not greater than this, then, you know, we're not going to invest in it or whatever. And that's something over the last few decades that's changed. It used to be like, that's why we have to wear seatbelts before they were like, well, the economic impact of losing a person in a car accident is not greater than forcing all these businesses and companies to to install install seatbelts and it wasn't until an economist who valued human life much greater went back and redid the calculations and redid the thought of what's the impact of losing one human life from an economic standpoint the output that that person could put in into the economy and help generate more jobs and more wealth and more value to their their community uh, and that number went up significantly to where now there's a lot of things that we have to do because they look at the math, the numbers, and they say, hey, you know, losing one human life is worth tens of millions of dollars in economic impact. It's a morbid way to think about it, but that's... I know, is my heart, my heart's breaking because I'm just yeah. over here like, oh, but that's, that's capitalism. Oh. Well, it's, it's the reality when you have, I mean, the, the idea in economics is you have scarce resources and you have to figure out how to use them yeah. in the most effective way possible. Stop being so logical, yeah, Tyler. It's, but that's, know it that's, sense. But that's what I'm, I guess that's what I'm trying to get to is this experience, how much it in some ways has, uh, reinforced a lot of beliefs I've had, but it's also challenged a lot of beliefs I've had. And one of them is the value of human life and understanding like, you know, I was one in a million, like that's a weird way, way, yeah, it's a weird way to say it. I'm so special. (laughs) One in a million, but it's true. But now when I think about like, well, that was me, like, Mm -hmm. and I am so grateful that people took me seriously and were, were willing to, to do so much for me you can't put value on a human life. It's, it's impossible. But at the same time, it's, we, we still have to do it in some cases. Sure. We have to make decisions. Yeah. And, and because we, we're all restricted. We all have, there's only so much time and money and energy and uh, ability that we have. And we've all, we're, we're making those calculations every day in our heads subconsciously about uh, why we do things. And I think this is just kind of altered in a, in a good way, I think, the way that I look at those things. It sounds to me like it, I mean, it expanded your capacity for empathy. Right. 
experiencing this and seeing how much care I was given and the thought that went into my treatment and people taking me very seriously for something that it's not stage four cancer, brain cancer or, or something really, really um, with a high mortality rate. It's, you know, something statistically speaking is pretty approachable as far as cancer goes. But the the care and the thought that went into how they took care of me and I was just as important to them as the person in the room next to me. So it's made me very grateful for people like that, but also very empathetic for people that are going through just life. I mean, yes, especially if it's a cancer diagnosis or an illness, or I'm very empathetic to that, but also just being more patient with with my wife or my, my business partners or people I work with, like just being like, I don't know what they're going through. I say a lot about the people that gave me care, like the, the doctors and the nurses, but even our friends and our family that showed so much generosity and hospitality and going through it with us, like being willing to come over and spend time with us just to distract us from having to think about it or showing up with a meal or showing up with a, like, hey, let's go out and get something to eat and then they're covering the bill or sending us gift cards or just being there to help us through it like that you feel very humbled and it's very vulnerable to ask for help your relationship with god since that experience how has that shifted for you so growing up my view of god was very much he's an authority figure that's overseeing everything i'm doing and am i doing it right or wrong and i think as i've grown I've learned I would say I've had a fairly healthy good relationship with my father and I know that's not the case for many people and I know that that's a hard when you think about God as being a father figure that that's a really hard thing for some people to understand and accept uh, or either any parent mother grandmother grandfather like uh, as any type of authority so I understand like the challenges with thinking that way but I think just as my relationship with my dad is transitioned from an authority caregiver like overseeing everything in my life to as I get older and he gets older we become more peers I definitely see and view God as more as like a a a friend that I in some ways want to emulate like I look up to because I I I value who they are and I want to be more like them but at the same time he's much more I guess the best relationship I can explain is like your spouse like with Katie I'm with her every day for hours on end and there's a lot of times where nothing we're doing is that meaningful but we're always together like in a sense we're always together and I kind of feel the same way about God. It's like we're kind of, we're always together. There's always a a conversation going and there's always a, like you need to get your act together kind of thing. There's sometimes where God's telling me like, get on this. Like you need to be working, like be moving, acting, doing something. Like you're you're putting this off. You need to do it. And then there's other times where he's like, you're being too hard on yourself. Like you're never going to be perfect. Like don't worry about it. Like rest. I definitely feel like I'm more in that in his presence in that sense and but it's a very different view from 
I think how I grew up thinking about God. You know, before we were recording, we were talking about vulnerability, and I think that's I think I've learned to be vulnerable with people, but also I've learned to be more vulnerable with myself and with God. When you think about this experience, mm-hmm. and you think about God or the universe, the divine, if you think about like the sentence, God or the universe is so much more blank than I realized. Good. Yeah, I. I think it's really strengthened my belief that generally people are good. I think God is good. I think the world is good. I'm grateful that there are so many good people doing good work that allowed me to have a good result. Like, I think it's really made me appreciate things that are good in this world. And I, I could keep coming back to Katie, but I was already feeling that way, being married to her. Like, she really does bring a lot of life and goodness to my life. And I love her so much for that. And going through this experience, I think just made that grow even more, you know, appreciating the things that are good and seeing how much good there is. And that being motivation for wanting to make things that are not good better and that there's, there's still hope to redeem those things. What I'm hearing is um, in the suffering and the ways that it exposed your vulnerability um, and the ways that it brought up a lot of really hard stuff, it also drew you into deeper parts of yourself and then also opening up into deeper parts of relationship with others. Mm-hmm. You really love your wife. Yeah. And I know she really loves you. And that the depth of your intimacy now is so much richer than it was before. Because you went through that together, but you also, like, saw each other. And, like, the parts that a lot of us don't want to show. Because that's what suffering does. Is it pulls that stuff out of us. And then the fact that you were met with love from her and she was met with love from you and now you're you have more love also within your own self yeah it's really beautiful that you've chosen to open yourself up to that and receive those gifts because a lot of people you know we, we protect ourselves and we just shut down even further thank you for saying that um a lot of what I go back to is I'm no different than anybody else like there have been a billions of people that have come before me there's going to be billions that come after me and they all at some point have to face death and the reality that their life is going to be over and I think having an experience where I wouldn't say I thought I was going to die but I definitely made it more real it was closer than it was was closer yes yes (laughs) so I think this experience is just in a lot of ways, made me more comfortable with the idea of of dying. I think something that's been hard to unpack from my upbringing in a very conservative, evangelical, Church of Christ setting is we're, we're taught a lot not to fear death because it's been overcome, but everything is in the lens of what happens when you're going to, when you die, are you going to go to hell? Yeah. Or are you going to go to heaven? And so... 
that's but that's always been a hard thing and a big fear is just of dying and i think this has really made me have to come to grips with that it's just been very humbling to be like you know i'm no better or worse than anyone else and there's a lot of people that have gone through what i've gone through and and survived and done gone on to live and so i i can do this too and i think about that in a lot of different contexts now like when i think about difficult relationships or difficult tasks I have to complete. And I just remind myself like, Hey, there's people doing this every day. You're no different. You're no better equipped or skilled or able than someone else. So if they're out there doing it, then you can do it too. If you need, if, if you want to, and which I think helps you appreciate life and live life in the present. It's a blessing because it allows you to, point back to something and refocus you on kind of what what actually matters in that present moment and not get so caught up in the past and what has happened and not get so hung up on what you need to do for the future but really appreciate what you have right now there's like seeing more clearly yeah yeah thank you thank you yeah thank you so much it's really i'm really grateful that you came on yeah I'm excited to to hear the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Beautiful. This must be the